This message first aired on the radio on June 11th, 2004. Well, we're taking our time getting through the first several verses of the Epistle of the Ephesians, but it's a lot to chew, and we're biting off even a bit more than maybe what appears directly in the Epistle, in order that we'll understand it properly. And we're coming in today to the end of the 7th and the beginning of the 8th verse, where we will discuss the mystery which was revealed to the Apostle Paul, called in this particular context the mystery of God's will, And as we take this up, I want to maybe clarify, but just probably just repeat a few things that we said last time as certain questions arose as to why did I undertake any discussion whatsoever about the history of the Christian church, about the uh, absence of writings uh, from the early church after the time of the apostle or any, any clear historical record. And I guess to simplify my point, and I went on for a few minutes, For those of you that care to hear it again uh, verbatim, uh, you can go to the website and listen, or you can ask for a copy of that, and you're uh, certainly not ashamed of any of it uh, whatsoever. But my point is simply this. The faith needs to be reproduced in our midst out of the Scriptures in every generation, especially even, I mean, today, because, of course, this is the only day in which I'm living. And the Scriptures are not passed along uh, institutionally. In fact, uh, the, the failure of institutions to pass along the Scripture is the history of the Christian church. And not only is it the history of the Christian church, it is the prophecy concerning uh, this age in which we live. The prophecy concerning this age uh, had to do with, uh, we, we can look, for example, in the parabolic teachings of Scripture, especially we can look at the parable of the mustard seed or the mustard tree, really the mustard bush, but it becomes a tree, and the parable of the leaven, and we can see some of what has happened in the age which we call the church age, or the age of the church which is his body. And and we say it with that modifier, the age of, of the church which is Christ's body, because there is a church age, or a piece of the church age, which is predicted Uh, 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 predominantly Jewish. In fact, there's a period at the outset that is only Jewish. And then there's a period of time while the mystery becomes uh, not not clear to the Apostle Paul, but where he has freedom to, to begin to write about it, including here in Ephesians, while the kingdom of the heavens is offered to Israel, and they're given plenty of time to reject it, where both Jew and Gentile are receiving the word of God, but we do not have in view one new man with neither Jew nor Gentile, one new man in Christ, until the progress of doctrine through the New Testament reaches this apex that we find in the epistle of the Ephesians. So what I'm saying is this. The the faith never was intended to be passed institutionally. We have the parables of Scripture in Matthew 13, the parable of the mustard tree. The parable of the mustard tree is that God plants a bush. The interpretation is this. God plants a bush, and it becomes a tree. And because it becomes too big and too worldly, uh, the birds of the air find a nest in it. Now, the birds of the air could never nest in a normal mustard bush. It's just too wispy. It's a fruitful thing. It gets tall. It gets, oh, maybe 8, 12 feet tall. But it's a wispy thing. It's the greatest among herbs, but it is no oak tree. And, of course, this has to do with the permutation and the aberration that Christian faith, or so-called Christian faith, Uh, It's not really the Christian faith, but the so-called attachment to Christian faith, the worldliness that entered in to the environments of the faith, 
and everything became very worldly and very large, even to the point, by the way, that sometime in around 350 A.D., maybe it was 345 A.D., uh, the uh, Roman Empire named Christianity as the sole religion of practice for the entire empire. Now, that's how worldly it became. It went from being a persecuted faith uh, by all uh, to becoming the predominant and dictated uh, faith of the Roman Empire. Now, in, in when that happened, let me assure you, the faith was not the same. It is not the faith that we read in the Scripture. It is Christianity as it had, had become known, uh, as it were, infected with the poison of the admixture of something other than the principle of grace through faith. And in so doing, the great truths of Scripture were abandoned, not by God, and uh, certainly not lost, because we have the Scriptures, but lost on men who who quickly moved away from the Lord and instead built their admixture of politics and worldly religion, which, by the way, then we look at the next parable in Matthew 13, and we see the parable of the leaven, which a woman took and uh, took three uh, and hid in three loaves until the whole was leavened. And so the leavening process occurred early on, and it continues to occur. And the, the faith that is Christianity cannot be found institutionally. It can only be found in the Scriptures. But God has not made it such that the Scriptures hang on nothing. The world hangs on nothing, as the Bible teaches us, but the Scriptures are always brought to us by someone. Now, we may not like to say that. We may like to be proud and say, well, not me. It's just me and my Bible, and I I sit around with my King James Version, and that's just, it just, I just get it all by myself. But the fact is that God sees to it that somebody transmits to you not all the Scripture. We don't need someone to teach us all the Scripture. But someone transmits to us, if we ever receive such transmission, we run across a faithful man here or there somehow who transmits to us the form of sound words, an outline of Scripture whereby we now understand uh, how to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, when we rightly divide the epistle of the Ephesians, we're going to find out that the good news has something more to has far more to do with other matters than to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life. It has very much more to do with other matters than the gift that God has. In fact, it has far more to do with the prize that God offers. And that is the apex of the Christian faith. In fact, almost all the epistles, almost the entire book of Acts, uh, uh, almost uh, all the scripture is, is to God's people concerning things to come and not concerning things you've already got. Not that things you already have are not important, but you already have them. The, the, the Holy Ghost came, as the Lord said, I have many things to tell you now, but when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll lead you into all truth. He'll tell you things to come. And, of course, God puts in this new nature that he gives us when we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive a new nature that longs after to know the things of him which are to come. Now, as we follow lusting and as we desire to make this world our home, we lose our interest in things to come, and we're ready at this time then, uh, being so debauched in faith, we take up all our interest in the things of this world. And so, by the way, we would rather listen to something like Rush Limbaugh than 
BibleStudy.net. And hey, listen, I have no problems with listening to Rush Limbaugh, uh, but I'd rather listen to BibleStudy.net. That's just me. I agree with the preacher. Well, here now we have in verse 8. So that's just, again, a summary of uh, another take on what I had to say yesterday, that we must have the Scriptures renewed from the Scripture to us. We can't depend on the fact that we've associated institutionally with the so-called right institution. And by the way, there's nothing trustworthy out there because institutionally, and I don't care whether you're talking about Romanism or, or other kinds of brethrenism, any kind of uh, institutional hold on the faith has always been squandered uh, institutionally. And what God has seen to it is that there would be faithful men who are able to teach uh, faithful men who are able to teach others also. And I, I'm not repeating myself there. That is the scripture. Well, we come now to uh, Ephesians, the first chapter, and we look at this truth that God is trying to give to us in our own age. And let me say that you need to unlearn a lot of things to, to learn properly, uh, because uh, you've probably been hanging around uh, the big tree or the leaven if you've been a Christian for very long. I trust you know what I'm talking about. But this is a difficult portion of Scripture. Uh, there are many things here uh, that we have to learn and that we don't know, that we just don't know. Now, he in verse 7, we looked at in whom we have redemption, and we talked about redemption as the purchase. Through his blood, and there is the payment, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so then we have the third thing in verse 7, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And now we have the word riches here, which is an important word for us to look at uh, because this is now the true riches, the true riches of his grace. And remember that grace always only comes one way. Grace only always comes through faith. And remember that faith only always comes one way. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So the true riches, which belong to grace, by the way, and not to this world, the true riches come to us by grace, through faith, through the word of God. And if you uh, will uh, believe this, and if you will accept this, let me tell you, God will test you in your life to see if you're faithful with fake riches, such baubles uh, as, as money, such little things as that. He'll test you with the fake riches, and then if you'll be faithful, God will give to you the real riches, which are found here, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1. Now we look to verse 8, very important verse, wherein, now here inside his grace, he has abounded toward us, in all wisdom and prudence. Uh, this word abounded uh, is a, a super, uh, a super abounded. It is, uh, uh, he is overflowing toward us in grace. Uh, he says in, in grace he has uh, overflowed toward us, or he, he abounds toward us. I think this half abounded uh, is uh, not a proper form of the word. It makes it a past tense, but uh, really wherein he abounds toward us in all wisdom. He is, God is gracious always in our direction. There is always grace. Grace is all that we need. There is always grace toward us, and it abounds. That is, it's abundantly more than we would ask or think. This caused uh, John Bunyan to write his wonderful little 
uh, Tredis, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Now, one thing doctrinally where John Bunyan was incorrect is considering himself to be the chief of sinners. Uh, John Bunyan, uh, as evil as he considered himself, was not the chief of sinners. The chief sinner was the Apostle Paul. He's the first. Doesn't mean he's the worst. Uh, he might have been. After all, he bragged about concerning zeal persecuting the church, but uh, he was the first or the prototypical sinner, but grace abounding toward us. And so now, as we keep in mind that thought, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, of course, this is the chief of sinners writing this epistle, and we understand he uh, that he knows intimately he knows experientially, not intuitively. We know intuitively just by knowing God that he is abounding in grace. But God wants us to prove all things and to know it experientially, that we would, we would understand experientially that his grace superabounds toward us. Now, and not, just, not just carelessly, not just arbitrarily but in wisdom and prudence. And this word prudence means reasonableness. It means uh, very well reasoned out. And so God's grace is very well reasoned out. And the Christian life is not some kind of trivial matter, and your thoughts about God should go beyond the trivial and pithy statements that thoughtless people ascribe to God, wherein they say such ridiculous things as, the ways of the Lord are strange indeed. In fact, that's not found in Scripture, and it's not even true. All the ways of the Lord are wise and they are prudent. They are reasonable and they can be reasoned out. And if you will live in the grace of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and stick to that principle and get accustomed to being thronged by his love and overwhelmed by his great graces, uh, then you will begin to see the reasonableness, the logic, uh, the a logic that passes understanding, by the way, that you don't ordinarily dream up, the great wisdom and logic and reasonableness of his abounding grace as bringing glory to our Lord Jesus Christ and thereby unto himself. And that is what we are coming to here as the predominant theme of the epistle to the Ephesians, wherein we read in verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now here we have the word mysterion. We have the word secret. And there were some things kept secret. There are secrets in the scripture. What good is a secret, by the way, if it's not told? Uh, the, the, the secret that nobody knows is not really even a secret. A secret has to be something that is told. A secret must be disclosed to become a secret, to, to really be a secret. And here it is. This is the mystery of God's will. God's will, which in, in previous times was not disclosed, had never been disclosed before, is here disclosed by the Apostle Paul. And I, when I say here disclosed, I don't mean simply in the epistle of the Ephesians. That's not the only place where the Apostle disclosed the mystery of God's will. He discloses it elsewhere in the Scripture. But it is a great mystery, which, by the way, was committed singularly, distinctly and solely to the Apostle Paul. Thereby we understand the great hatred of the world, the flesh, and the devil against him. We understand why it is uh, that the devil stirred up enemies of the Jews, enemies of the Gentiles, indeed brethren in Christ, who were enemies of the cross of Christ, but certainly not enemies of Christ, stirred them up against the Apostle Paul 
to destroy him and to and to see to it that he, that this mystery did not get disclosed. So what did God do? God's reaction to man's defection, as one T. Austin Sparks' book title says, God's reaction to man's defection was to sequester the Apostle Paul under house arrest, whereby it looked as if he was the prisoner, but in fact he was being protected, not imprisoned. Of course, he is imprisoned, he is in a chain, but that's a detail matter. God protects the Apostle and now gives him freedom and liberty to disclose the secrets which he must have known for some time. This secret, I believe, uh, was given to him at least in part, uh, uh, if not in, in, in full, when he was caught up to the third heaven, when he talked about, I knew a man in Christ in Second Corinthians, caught up to the third heaven, and there given unspeakable things, things he was uh, given things that he couldn't speak, but uh, now he's disclosing them, and he's disclosing them to all of us, but only in the scriptures. Only in the scriptures you say, well, how can it remain a secret once he publishes? Doesn't everyone know it? Well, everyone can know it. Everyone can know it. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll have a new nature to understand it. Then they can read it in the Bible and understand it if they'll do that. But we don't. This is BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. Come back because we're going to disclose it. Uh, and we're going to continue to disclose it here. So stay with us past this brief announcement. Well, we said we're going to disclose the mystery that was given to the Apostle Paul, but we're not going to do it in a few seconds, and we're not going to get it all done even in this show. But here it is right in the Bible. It says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, verse 9, according to his good pleasure. By the way, this is his great desire, is to make known this. And this good pleasure... Uh, not only is it his desire, but this good pleasure is his good judgment. This is God's good judgment. Uh, here it says, according to his good judgment. Now, we find the Lord reasonable. We find the Lord gracious. We find the Lord rich and abounding in grace toward us. And here we find him of good judgment. And you say, well, of course, God is of good judgment. He's the judge. He's good. Of course, he's of good judgment. How can we argue with that? And most people will not directly argue with that. And yet, in the vanity of their own mind, they'll begin to criticize and judge God's thoughts as if they need to be judged or the, as if they need to be superintended and okayed by them. Listen, we come to the Scripture knowing that God is reasonable and go, knowing that God uses good judgment. And so when he here has decided not to make known the mystery of his will for a period of time and then decides at this time in the writing of the epistle of the Ephesians and through the ministry of the Apostle Paul that it's now time to make known uh, the mystery of his will, then we have to realize that that's all of good judgment. That's all part of God's good judgment. And he kept the Apostle Paul from disclosing this until the offer to Israel, which was on the table, that they would receive the Savior and he'd come back and set up his kingdom and then they would rule from the heavens over the earth. They had that very real offer given to them until they rejected it. And then he set him aside and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out of the Gentiles a people for my name. I'm going to take out of the Jews uh, the remnant according to grace. These are in that, uh, that election. And I'm going to obliterate the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And I'm going to make one new man in Christ. And this is going to be the body of Christ. And it's going to be one new man. 
and this now from there I will take those who qualify and they will rule and reign in the heavens over the earth in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ now I've shot ahead there and I've told you how I view this but we come here into into verse 9 and he says having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good judgment or good pleasure which he has purposed in himself now here he uh, uh, has uh, hereby determined inside of himself or in himself uh, to get this done and he will get it done now what is it that he's going to get done verse 10 a very misunderstood or ignored verse of scripture that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both uh, which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him now in Christ uh, well we've just got to go back and look at the beginning of this first of all it says that in the dispensation here's our word dispensation uh, I know that uh, I've, I teach dispensations you look at the biblestudy.net and our whole approach to scripture is to outline the dispensations to impart an outline we believe that the dispensational teaching uh, that we've imparted is an outline that has been imparted to us and freely we received it so freely we give and uh, we we acknowledge that uh, there might be a few defects in our outline but we have an outline of scripture and when the scripture comes in we have a place to put it and that's what allows us to enjoy the Bible uh, you hear at the beginning of this show that the purpose of BibleStudy.net is to help you enjoy the scriptures you know the scriptures God gave himself uh, to us to enjoy and uh, he also gave us the scriptures to enjoy and he gave us a new nature to enjoy the scriptures that's uh, what we have here below in, in the, and he also gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness he gave us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ so that we can live a life pleasing to him today and so that when we rendezvous with him at his returning which we long for the returning just like the Apostle Paul longed for the returning of Christ we read that in Philippians 1 uh, that he does greatly desired the, his returning that we will be pleasing and bold at that time well here now we have the dispensation of the fullness of times what is that dispensation it's here, here called this is a good old Bible word dispensation King James English oconomia elsewhere called I believe stewardship or uh, called administration but it is a dispensation a, a time of dispensing uh, oko ok Oiko meaning house, uh, nomia uh, being uh, the word under uh, the, the root word for law, a nomos. This is the house law or house rule, and a dispensation is a, is an administration. I have no problem with the one who would translate this stewardship, but it, this is one of the fullness of times. This is a future dispensation. Now, the mere fact that the apostle in Ephesians one refers to a dispensation of the fullness of times means that there are at least two of them because if there's one advanced if there's one in in the future then what is it that is now well the one that is now the apostle paul says a dispensation had been given to him in fact he said that a, specifically a dispensation of the good news had been given to him and therefore his reward was in delivering it faithfully freely 
It wasn't re- he wouldn't be rewarded for simply delivering it, but he would be rewarded for delivering it faithfully and freely. And so that's what he uh, that's what he said. Now, if a dispensation was given to the apostle Paul, then that now ha- there have to be three of them because he's finite in time, and there had to be a dispensation before him. So whether we call ourselves dispensational or not, we have to say there's at least three dispensations, one before the one given to Paul, and here the one that Paul uh, refers to, which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, if you've been following BibleStudy.net, or if you go to our website, you'll see that we find uh, eight of them. And uh, uh, maybe there's more, Uh, maybe there's fewer, uh, maybe you'd like to divide the Word of God a little bit differently, but just make sure you have at least three. And now here it says, In the dispensation of, full, of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, this is a lot of words uh, to say a little thing. Uh, where he, we have uh, six English words, he might gather together in one. What this really means, it's a, it's a long word, it's compound Greek word, but what it really means uh, is to sum it up, to add it all up, to really I- incorporate it up or, or bring it all up in Christ. So it, 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 the gather together is a good phrase because what it has to do is to sum it up in Christ, to pull everything, as it were, under his headship. Now today we do not see all things under him. We don't see all things under him at all today. In fact, we see a world hostile to him, still persecuting him. But what we ought to see, we ought to see the believers summed up or headed up in Christ. This is the church, which is his body. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, his headship is seen. We even have a symbol, the head covering for the woman, which is to signify the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ in the assembled gathering of Christian believers, something that has gone awry in the last 50 years, by the way, but a symbolic practice whereby we acknowledge to the heavenly places as the angels, I hope they still attend uh, uh, our church, and I hope they still attend the church that you attend. But when the angels come, they can behold the order and the fact that man veils his glory because these people here are committed to bringing glory to their risen head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today, that's the Christian practice, or it's supposed to be the Christian practice. That's to be the practice in all the churches. But there's a day coming called the dispensation of the fullness of times when God will gather together in one everything, things in heaven and things in the earth. He'll gather together everything in Christ, and he'll be the head of all things. Now, we have even more perfectly uh, laid out things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth elsewhere, which we looked at in the book of uh, Galatians. But let me just say, uh, or excuse me, Colossians, but let me just say that uh, in this scripture here, in the 10th verse of Ephesians 1, we see that God's purpose is future. God's purpose is future. In fact, uh, we look forward to that day. We see the future. In fact, we're, we're in it already. We are in it already insofar as all the future is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ 
over all things. That's the future dispensation coming. Now, after that, after that future dispensation coming, God will be all in all. We learn that from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And if we have a moment, we'll go take a look at that thing. Uh, we'll look at those verses. We've looked at them before, uh, but we'll look at them again. But here is the, the, the great truth about the mystery revealed to the Apostle Paul, at least part of it. And that is that God intends in the future, at a future time, to sum up and make Jesus Christ the head over everything. Now this is the great glory of Christ in his return, and this is tied up with his return. And every Christian should be focused on that and have the same hope, which is the hope of our calling, which is that we'll be pleasing in our rendezvous with him. And what happens in our rendezvous with him? Well, if we're pleasing to him, we will be co-heirs, co co-regents with him. We will be joint heirs with him in that age. Well, this is now uh, the purpose and the great uh, uh, truth that part of the great truth, and there, there's more interesting pieces to the great truth, which is a mystery never before disclosed among men, but now disclosed to the Apostle Paul, that there's a future time coming when all things will be summed up in Christ. It'll be summed up in Christ. Now, this this summing up uh, in in Christ is has already begun. It has already begun. It has begun in His incorporation in his incorporation we we understand incorporation in a business sense but it's a good thing to understand it has to do with the forming of a body under one person as one legal person that's where the english word incorporation means it means to come into one body from the from the latin corpus meaning body in one body and that is a term uh, borrowed it's been very useful in business been a great blessing legally and in business uh, throughout many many years and it's just one of those blessings that comes to the world from having a little bit of understanding of being one uh, incorporated one body in Christ it's a Bible concept that he would that he would gather together in one all things in Christ now today we don't see all that. In fact, we see our Lord Jesus Christ in his rejection. We see in front of us, between us and that day, we see the continued antagonism and hatred of our Lord Jesus Christ and that is visited against his body just like his crucifixion was visited against his body. We don't see all things under him, but we know with the eyes of our understanding that that is going to happen in the coming dispensation. You say, well, why doesn't God just do that now? Well, for the same reason that God uh, didn't just, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come back to Israel right away. He had something better in mind. He had in mind this current dispensation whereby he is incorporating all who will receive Christ during the day of his rejection and giving them the marvelous opportunity of qualifying as joint heirs with him in that coming dispensation. You remember uh, that we saw that it's God's great purpose to make him the firstborn among many brethren. Well, what does it take? to be the firstborn among many brethren? Well, it takes the many brethren. And so God is collecting many brethren to our Lord Jesus Christ in this day. And even you, 
I don't care how pathetic your life is. I don't care what a loser you are. I don't care how much of a winner you think you are. You're missing out on everything that God intends for man if you fail to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and enjoy this marvelous opportunity of being among the first to have hope in him. Now that's where the apostle's heading with the next couple of verses. He says he's trying he that God's dispensation in the future, which is called by the way the fullness of times. We have this word fullness, a very important word. It is the word pleroma. It is the word meaning the very best, the most complete. It ha- it's a it's a superlative term. This is the term used for our Lord Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. That means it leaves nothing out. Here is the dispensation of the fullness of times. That is the the, the, the pleroma, the completion of all the dispensations, the apex dispensation. Everybody likes to think that they're living in the best time or the worst time, whatever it is. And in a sense, you are today because you can qualify to be in the best position in the coming dispensation. But God is building from this dispensation to the dispensation of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ or the one of the fullness of times. The the one who not only all things belong to and are organized around, but the one whom all of human history is organized around. All of human history organized pointing and converging on the great summing up of all things heaven earth under the earth in our lord jesus christ well those are about as grand a statements as we can make that's about as grand a statements as we can make i know the world thinks we are grandiose for believing that we have followed the king of the whole earth the one who's coming in stupendous glory let them think so God is reasonable. We are in our right minds to receive Christ as Savior. And now, also, not only that, but to inspect our marvelous opportunities and the riches of His grace which superabound toward us, having done so. Now we have verse uh, 11. In whom, now it says this is in Christ, in whom, or in Him, in whom, also we have obtained an inheritance now this is an unhappy uh, this is an unhappy translation because this says well we have already obtained our inheritance well frankly friends if we have already if we have already obtained an inheritance uh, I'm disappointed I don't mind saying so I'm very disappointed because uh, this isn't all that pleasant and uh, this is not what I had in mind this is not what I have in mind when I read the scriptures that this is that I've got my inheritance already I feel like a relative pauper compared to what I see promised in the Scripture. And if I already have my inheritance, I'm feeling real cheated here. So let's look at what the Bible really says. But let's do it in a minute after this brief break. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, if you're still listening. And I'm John Malone. Well, let me say that here in verse 11, where it reads in the King James, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance..." There is nothing in the language of the Bible about obtaining here. There's nothing in here about obtaining. Now, it is assumed that the inheritance will be obtained, but really it's just in whom also there is inheritance. Now, some believe that means that we are the inheritance, uh, his inheritance, 
uh, in him. And, and there's some truth to that, by the way. We are his inheritance. Uh, we, are, we do belong. We are the redeemed. He did purchase us. We are bought with a price. So we are his uh, inheritance. That's a true thing. But I do not believe that though that's a true statement, that that is what this verse says. What this verse is saying merely is that our inheritance is also in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we've obtained it. We, our inheritance is in Christ. And uh, of course, uh, that inheritance which cannot be forfeited, which God will not allow us to forfeit, of course, is thereby secure. That portion of inheritance that we can forfeit and by the way, there is forfeitable inheritance. One of the things that we're warned about, for example, in the book of Hebrews, lest there be any among you who was like Esau. Who was like Esau. And what did Esau do? Well, he forfeited his inheritance. He forfeited it. He threw it away. And he threw it away in a bowl of stew. And there are all kinds of people today throwing away portions of their inheritance I mean, Esau was not totally disinherited as a son by his father, but he lost the blessing that attached to his firstborn rights and privileges. And let me tell you, you can lose the blessing and the firstborn rights and privileges just like Esau did if you act just like Esau did. That's what the warning of the book of Hebrews is about. We, if we come uh, by the grace of God, allows us to come to the book of Hebrews, we'll go through those five warnings in Hebrews as serious they are, and I will tell you, child of God, every single one of them is to you, it is for you, it may be about you, and it is uh, for your learning and, and for your warning, and by the way, it has nothing to do with your eternal life. And neither, neither does this. This has to do now with an inheritance that's in him. And of course, God would have us to desire it and to look upon that and say, there's a wonderful inheritance coming in our Lord Jesus Christ in the dispensation of the fullness of times, and I don't want to miss any, any piece of it or any part of it. I do not want to be disinherited. I do not want to forsake the privileges of the firstborn like Esau did, which is what? A threefold privilege to, of, of rulership, of priesthood, and of double portion. Not only do I want to have eternal life, but if God offers to me rulership and priesthood and a double portion, I want all of it. And of course, in Christ also is our inheritance. It is all in Christ. Now, here it says, being predestinated. Now, what's the, what's the connection? This is our friend pro orizo or foreordained. Remember, that's only about the believer. It's not about the unbeliever. We don't know about foreordination or anything about it. The Bible doesn't talk about foreordination of the believer. In fact, by the absence of it, we can say, well, the believer is foreordained and the unbeliever is not. He's not. But we now have the foreordination of the Lord, which is always a good thing. That is to say, he has a plan. He has a destiny for us, which includes an inheritance, which is also, by the way, in Christ. Because every good thing is in Christ. And by the way, all things are going into Christ. It's just that there's a great blessing, uh, an additional blessing for us, if we are in Christ 
now. And uh, by the way, not just an additional blessing, but every blessing uh, in all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Well, what what does it say here? It says, according, he says, having uh, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, our predestination has to do with God's purpose. That destination that God intends for us has to do with God's purpose. Well, what is God's purpose? God's purpose is always one. It is to give great glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. So here it says in verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. What is it? Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who have already, or who have, here it says, who have first trusted in Christ, but actually it means having before hoped in Christ. Before what? Before the dispensation of the fullness of times. Here we have some difficult translation, of course, and we have a few problems here. Because if we read this, in uh, <clears throat> that we should be the praise of glory who first trusted in Christ, well, what does that mean by first? I guess I'm not first. The apostle was first, and now I've just heard the faith, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of an eleventh-hour believer. There's all these thousands, a couple thousand years, hundreds of of years, several centuries have gone by, and and I'm sort of an eleventh-hour guy, and I guess I'm not one who first trusted in Christ. Well, I'm not one who first trusted in Christ. I'm one who later trusted in Christ. Uh, but, by the way, happily, the Bible doesn't really say that we should be the praise of, of His glory who first trusted in Christ. It says, we should be to the praise of His glory who have before hoped in Christ. Have before hoped in Christ. Before what? Then obviously, if you want to be one of these, and I do, you want to say, well, before what? Before the dispensation of the fullness of times. That is, this present day. So you might say, well, the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's the best days. Uh, that's obviously the best time. Everything's summed up in Christ. That's the best time. And now I can argue with you and say, well, no, actually the best time is now because now you can get yourself into the position of being to the praise of His glory in that day. And today determines your position in that day. And my friend, it does. And don't you let anybody tell you that this is something you have already obtained. You have not yet obtained your inheritance. And that's good news, too. Now, that means you have something wonderful to look forward to. You have something wonderful to look forward to in Christ. That we should be the, to the praise of His glory who first, or who have before hoped in Christ, before this time, in whom also... Uh, by the way, in whom also, verse 13, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now this has to do with the marvelous sealing of the believer. Because as you look at this, you'd say, well, my inheritance is in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm feeling real good about this. What, what, now how, how do I remain faithful so that I can, I can enjoy the fullness of that inheritance? Oh my goodness. What if I fell out of Christ? Yeah, I realize that all things are going to be summed up in Him, but and I know that I'm in Christ, but I'm a little concerned that I fall out of Christ somehow. 
Is there some way that I could get back out of Christ and be on the same ground as those who have not believed? That's actually at issue here. And the apostle writes, before you can ask that question, and said, you were sealed in whom? You notice it says, in whom? That means in Christ. In whom, after you believed, you were sealed. So we're not just sealed, but we are sealed in someone. We are sealed in Christ. It is as if our Lord Jesus Christ, corporately, as federal head of a new humanity, is an envelope. And when we are in him, the envelope becomes sealed with the signification of God, God Almighty's own stamp, his own stamp, which is a certainty, we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And now here we are sealed by a present possession. So here is not the jeopardy, here is the jeopardy. We're going to come to some of the jeopardies, and we're going to talk about them, but let me just summarize in advance so that we can see where we're going. There is jeopardy of forfeiting inheritance that is in Christ. There is not jeopardy of forfeiting being in Christ. We are all in Christ when we believe. We are incorporated into Him. He's our federal head. Now the only issue is not whether we're in Christ or not, but whether we are faithful as members of His body. I hope I've made that clear, because there are things at issue, there are things not at issue. And if we're careful and we divide the Word of God carefully, uh, properly, uh, we cut it straightly, we'll see the things that are, are distinguishable, those things which are and are not at issue. It is not at issue whether you're going to be in Christ forever. You are already in Christ and you're sealed in. And God gave you that seal. He gave us the Holy Spirit of promise in order to give us the assurance that we're in Him and that we're secure in Him. We're not, we've already been summed up. We're the first fruits, as it were, of the dispensation to come. Summed up already in Christ, we have found our right position in the universe. Those of us who have believed in Christ, we've been incorporated in Him as our federal head. Now, this is the earnest, verse 14, the earnest of our inheritance. So we haven't obtained our inheritance, we have obtained an earnest. Now, what is an earnest? Well, it's a down payment. It's a taste of it, it's a piece of it. A piece of your inheritance. Maybe your father would do that with you. Maybe your father is a wealthy man. Well, as a matter of fact, he's wealthy or poor. Maybe your father is is forward-looking, and he says, well, I have an inheritance for all of you, and uh, there's some things at stake I, uh, here. Uh, we have to see how you do, but I'm going to give you all something right now. I'm going to give you all something right now, and it's going to be earnest. You can be assured that there is an inheritance. Here's an earnest. There's an inheritance laid up for you. You can be assured that it's there. Here's some earnest, just to let you feel good about it. Here's a little taste. And so maybe he lays uh, $5,000 or $10,000. He said, this is a little earnest money. Go ahead and have it. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. And so God gives us an earnest of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit of promise. That is that new nature witnessed also by the person of the Godhead, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. This is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now he's already paid for it. It's already secure. He's done the he's done the redempt he's done the redemptive work. But uh, but there is still uh, or he's done the purchasing work, but there still is this time called the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So this is now not redemption in general, which work he has done on the cross. 
Remember, we read about that uh, over here, uh, in whom we have the redemption, not just redemption as a verb, but the redemption as an event. This is also in Christ, through his blood. That's the way it comes to us. That's the purchase. That's why it's, that's why it's owned. But yet, although it has been paid for, just like Jeremiah paid for land right before the children of Israel went into captivity and that land was taken away from them, Jeremiah paid for him, paid for it just like he did that, and it certified that later he would enjoy it because God told him they'd be back in that land. Just as they, it was certain as that was, it was as, as the future is as certain as history with God. Here it is. The earnest of our inheritance is given to us so that we have a happy knowledge and a satisfactory knowledge that Jesus Christ really did pay the price. There is the redemption coming. There is the adoption coming. It is certain. It is in Him. And now we have the enjoyment of the new nature and of the Holy Spirit of God until that time. And this now corresponds also to the predestination of God. So the new nature plus the Holy Spirit plus the predestination of God all work together in our behalf to bring us into an inheritance that is laid up in Christ. This should get you motivated. This should get you interested. This should get you excited. And indeed it does. There's something in us. There's this new nature that is responsive to this saying, well, I now, not only do I have the Spirit of Christ in me that says, Abba, Father, that I know God is my Father, but I look forward to the sonship where I am shown to be a son, not only a son, by the way, but I want to be shown as a firstborn son with firstborn rights and privileges. I have the spirit of sonship right now. I cry, Abba, Father, and I want to uh, uh, have a great joy for my father and not be weeping and gnashing my teeth and in tears like Esau was when don't you have a blessing for me. And actually, the story is... Well, I had a blessing for you. It was yours. You forfeited it. I feel for you, but can't you see? You lost it. And uh, I don't want to end up that way. I want to end up bold and uh, happy at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to do, I want to come into my inheritance. Well, we have very many things to say about that. We've come to the 14th verse of the Epistle of the Ephesians. We are looking forward to the... Uh, to the fullness of our inheritance and the obtaining of the inheritance that's laid up for us. But in the meantime, we have the earnest or the deposit of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, of course, unto the praise of His glory. So may all things be done to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And may He get glory from BibleStudy.net and, and this broadcast, whether by Internet or on the radio. And may He bless you in your meditation, in his word, especially the epistle to the Ephesians. You'll be listening to BibleStudy.net and me, John Malone.